Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, wow, that is so nice to hear people actually say that back. It has been like a year of preaching to a camera, and I got to be honest, that feels good. Uh, not, not that I want to disparage anybody who's still at home. I assume you all say good morning to me every time I say it, too. Hey, you know, it's been a while since I've actually been up here. Um, and usually when I speak, I always start off with some kind of introduction story. And I got to be honest, I, was real, I think I shot myself in the foot the last time I spoke. Because the last time I spoke, I talked about a story where I stabbed my friend Steve in the neck with a lettuce knife. And I just can't top that story. And every time I tried to come up with it, I like come up with something for today. I was like, no, it just doesn't. So we're just going to bypass that. We're just going to bypass that. I got some other things we'll talk about. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to jump right in. We're continuing our series that we're calling a brand new. Brand new. It's looking at Jesus' words in Luke 5 and 6, talking about how he is inviting us into a brand new way of living. Not just simply adapting our lives in small ways to try and accommodate Jesus, but Jesus is giving us a radical call to radically reshape our lives in a, in a way that's completely different and completely new. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6. Nolan read it for, our, for us earlier, uh, verses 27 to 36. And if you have your Bibles, you can just open them up and, and put your finger in there. Uh, this is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Plains. It, it's it's uh, really similar to maybe the slightly more famous Sermon on the Mount, which we find in the Gospel of Matthew. But here we're looking at Luke's, uh, Luke's telling, the Sermon on the Plains, and starting about verse 27, we find Jesus talking about a new way to love. He, he says some things uh, in this section that we're probably used to hearing. This section contains one of the kind of more famous pieces of scripture, what's called the golden rule. Anybody, anybody familiar with the golden rule? What does the golden rule say? Very good, Catherine. Do unto others as you <laughs> I think that's uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? But Jesus in this section also says some things that probably we're a little less comfortable with. Nolan, as I said, read this earlier, but let's let's just let's just look really quickly at verse twenty seven and twenty eight. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you, and pray for those who hurt you. And if we jump down to the end of the passage, verse 35 and 36, we read this. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid, and then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will be truly acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. This whole passage that we're looking at today is framed by these three words. Love your enemies. We see it at the beginning and we see it at the end and that shapes everything that happens in between. This comes right on the heels of Luke's version of the Beatitudes, the blessings and the woes, the blessings 
as Kirk mentioned to us last week, the blessings and the consequences, right? And coming right out of that, how Jesus says, living this new life leads to this blessing, and there are consequences for living in the world's way, he starts off and says, let's start by talking about love. Moves right into that, into this love section. And Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us that if we are going to live as kingdom people, if we are going to model our lives after Jesus, then we need to love our enemies. Of course, this opens up a world of questions. And we don't have time to get into a world of questions, but we're going to focus on just two big ones. The first question that we have to ask is, who is my enemy? Because I, I don't know about you, but I, I live in this world, and, and, and for the most part, I don't think I have a ton of enemies. I, I don't, it's like this, I, I think I'm a fairly likable guy. I, I think I'm a fairly likable guy, and, and most people that I meet, I, I seem to be at least pleasant with. I, I, I know it's, it's, it's funny, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to say this today, but uh, given that Caitlin is here, uh, I, I know that I can be competitive. And so I think I might have some rivalries, right? In particular, for like, I think six years, I've kept up to date on a memory verse app that nobody else uses, <laughs> except Caitlin. And I, I, I literally check this app uh, more than I need to to just see the day where her six verses drops down to five so I can take a screenshot and I'm waiting for the day that I can send it to her with a big like, ha, 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 I win. But I would never call Caitlin my enemy. In fact, uh, I mean, I think, I think I might call her a friend. In fact, as I look over my life, I think there's really only two people that I might give the label of enemy to. One of them was a, was a guy, he was a, a bully. And I know uh, you might be surprised to hear this, but when I was younger, there were a few people who used to think I was a bit of a loser. It's true, yeah. And, and I, got, I got bullied a little bit. In, in elementary school, the name of my bully was Sean Ducart. You just tell he was evil by his name, right? Sean Ducart just sounds menacing. But even as I was thinking about this message, maybe 30 years ago, I would have called Sean an enemy. Man, it's been a long time, and I, I, I've done some reflecting and recognized that, I mean, we were just kids. And I've raised a few kids myself, and I recognize that sometimes kids do dumb things. And hopefully, they eventually grow into maturity. And I have no idea where Sean is today, but I assume that he's grown up a little bit. And, and I doubt that Sean and I would ever be best friends. But I'm not sure that today I would call him an enemy. Maybe the second person in my life that I would maybe give that label to is a little more complicated for me. It's a former boss of mine. His name was Marcel, and I don't have a lot of good things to say about him. Uh, he, was, he was a guy that caused me a lot of grief. 
And I had to do a lot of soul searching when I kind of left that job to try and figure out what to do with the hurt and the anger in my life that was largely related to my relationship with this guy. But even with Marcel, I'm not sure how to call him an enemy. I don't wish him bad. There was a point in my life where I remember, I think you can call someone an enemy when you're starting to pray prayers like, God, I don't want to wish him bad, but if something happened, I think I'd be okay. I bring up these two examples because I'm not sure either of them really fits with the classic definition of an enemy. But they're the closest I can come up with in my life. And I find myself wondering, are these the people that Jesus tells me I should love? Like, does Jesus really want me to love Sean and Marcel? Or is he talking about someone else? Maybe you have a couple names in your, in your mind where you say, oh, what's the closest I could come up with? And is that who Jesus is talking about? I, I find it hard to think about what it would look like to love these people. And there's an interesting thing happening as I try and look for who is it that Jesus is talking about when he says, love your enemy. And I've looked through this passage and, and there's something interesting that happens. Jesus doesn't really say who our enemy is. He, he says some things, and we'll get to that in a second, but, but there's a sense in which we kind of have to speculate about who Jesus is talking about because in the category of the Gospels, there are a lot of people who might fit the definition of Jesus' enemy. We've got the Romans, right? The Romans who are this oppressive, militaristic, conquering force. They've subjugated Israel. Caesar himself is set up as some kind of foreign god who demands worship from his people in the way of both taxes and actual worship and is set as kind of a contrast to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And if anyone could be an enemy of Israel and of Jesus, we might say Rome. And, 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 and the people hearing Jesus' message, they probably also thought, oh, maybe he's talking about the Samaritans. Right? The Samaritans, the people who lived just a, a little ways over, who claimed to be worshipers of the same God, but, but they were descendants, descendants of people who had betrayed God's command not to intermarry with the nations around them. They'd, they'd broken God's commandment. They can't be Israelites. They can't be servants of Yahweh. Th those maybe are the enemies. Of course, as we continue reading through the Gospels, we find Jesus having a lot of clashes with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, right? In fact, we find out that the, the religious leaders were actively plotting to kill Jesus. I think probably they're Jesus' enemies. And maybe if we get a little closer to home, we find that someone actually was really an instigator in the rest and eventual betrayal and, and crucifixion of Jesus, a man named Judas, who was in Jesus' inner circle. He was Jesus' friend. And, and, and there's something about when Jesus says, love your enemies, you have to think, oh, is he talking about Judas? Is he talking about the Pharisees? Is he talking about Rome? Who is he talking about? Because I would love to have some kind of category 
for figuring out who he's talking about, and Jesus doesn't give us that. Jesus might have been talking about any of these people, and I think there's a good case to be, said, to be made to suggest that Jesus is actually talking about all of them. But rather than naming them, here's what he says. He says, to those who are willing to listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who hurt you. So we know that the enemies are those that hate us and that hurt us and that curse us. Those are are pretty bad, bad people. And, And Jesus' call then to love our enemies isn't just love people that we don't like. It's love people who actively are against us. And I want to suggest that's a pretty extreme call. Now, because it's extreme, of course, we have an option, right? We have the option to say Jesus is just being extreme. He's being hyperbolic. He's saying, love the people that hate you and setting the bar up here in the hopes that we'll meet them halfway. If Jesus is being hyperbolic here, then we get to let ourselves off the hook a little bit. We could say Jesus is just being extreme. Jesus does this. He's saying, love your enemies, but he doesn't really mean love your enemies. He, loves, he means love the people you're uncomfortable with, but not those people who are actually actively hating and hurting and cursing you. He doesn't really mean that. He wants us to go further than we are, reach towards that goal, but not actually. But here's the thing. I want to suggest Jesus is being extreme, but just because he's being extreme doesn't mean he doesn't actually expect us to live up to what he says. There's more going on here, too. Let's look at verse 32 to 34. If you love only those who love you, why should you get the credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get the credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Jesus here suggests that not only should we love our enemies, but he also suggests we should love the people that we love and the people that love us. He says, yeah, you know what? There's a, there's a high bar that we're reaching to, but there's also a minimum expectation that even the world loves the people that love us, right? Our family and our friends. Jesus isn't excluding. He's not saying only love your enemies. He's saying, yeah, of course we should be loving our family. Of course we should be loving our friends. And since he does that, he sets this high bar and he sets this low bar of minimum expectations, we have to infer that Jesus also includes everything in between. Right? Everything in between, which, which is really interesting because that includes all those people that we just don't notice. All those people maybe that it's convenient for us to ignore. You know, we watched a, a video just a few minutes ago of David Hearn talking about the crisis in India. It's far away. They're not our enemies. They're hurting people. And Jesus' call to love our enemies says we need to love those in between that don't impact our day-to-day life. 
those people that are forgotten or missed. Jesus is calling us to love everyone who fits in between the huge category in the middle of people that we often just don't notice. By saying love your enemies, Jesus says love everyone, love everyone up to and including your enemies. One commentator put it this way, the call to new life is a radical refusal to treat anyone as though they were an enemy. That we don't ever get to label anyone as an enemy, we get to label people with the love of Christ. This is a call to love with the full scope of the love with which Jesus has shown to us. And of course, that opens up the second big question that we have to ask, which is, what is love? Uh, yeah, see Brad nodding his head, right? He's thinking, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about Hathaway. <laughs> okay? Not talking about Night at the Roxbury. We're asking the question of what does it mean to love our enemies? What does loving our enemies actually mean? Is maybe the more important question because I think we often just get this really wrong. Uh, again, I said... I live in this world, and I expect most of you do too. Maybe some of you live in some other fantasy world. But most of us live in the world here and now. And this world tells us a lot about what love is, doesn't it? There's probably a lot of ways we could go. Chandra did a great job with the kids talking about some of the ways that we think about love, right? Love is an open door. We're not going to sing that one. I think there's probably two big categories that we're bombarded with all the time. The first is that love is relational, right? Love is the progression of a relationship. That, that if we start off in our relationships, we start off maybe as strangers. But strangers move towards acquaintances, which move towards friendship. And somewhere over here, you've got your BFF. And that that might progress towards love. That there's this, this spectrum, and that if we're called to love our enemies, it means moving along a spectrum of relationship towards love. And, and that's a problematic view of what love is, especially if we start thinking about what does it mean for Jesus to tell us to love our enemies? Is he telling us that we need to be friends with them? That we need to progress in our relationship towards love? Because that doesn't even really make sense. Friendship, of course, is a two-way street, right? We don't have a lot of control over that. I totally lost my, lost my notes, but okay. Friendship is a two-way street. And, and sometimes, sometimes the reality is that we just don't really like some people. Like I said, I'm, I think I'm a pretty likable guy, but even I know that there are some people in my life that... I'm just never going to be friends with. Is it a personality clash or uh, circumstances? That, that friendship is just never going to happen there. We're just different people. They rub me the wrong way. And, and we don't really have control over that. And, and third, the reality is that there are some people in our lives that it's just not healthy for us to be friends with. 
When we think about love as being relational, and we say Jesus tells us to love our enemies, then we open the door all kinds of problem, problematic things, like saying, hey, that means that you have to stay in a relationship that's hurtful to you for the sake of progressing in a relationship with your enemies? And I don't think that's what Jesus is telling us. He's not telling people who are hurt to stay in hurtful situations and try and be friends with the people that are hurting them. That's antithetical to who Jesus is. The second way maybe that we think about love if it's not relationally is Chandra pointed out to us. It's a feeling-centric love. Right? It's all grounded in our emotion or related to our own feelings. Love maybe is about my own satisfaction or about my own happiness. How do I know if I'm in love? Because I feel it. Those of us who remember falling in love know exactly what that felt like. Chandra talked about that squishy feeling. I don't know if squishy is the right feeling, but I know that every time that I saw Janice when we were in college, in my second year of college, like my stomach got into knots and I could no longer think about things, and I was like, I have no idea what's going on, but this must be love. Now, it turned out, uh, I, I still feel that way every time Janice walks into a room. So, I mean, aww. So maybe that's, maybe that's what it is, but, but we know feelings change, right? This kind of love can often be really superficial. How do I know I love tacos? Because... They make me feel good. And every time I know that we have tacos on the menu, I get a big smile on my face because who doesn't love tacos, right? I enjoy tacos, therefore I love tacos. I don't think this is what Jesus suggests to us here. He's not suggesting that we force ourselves to enjoy our enemies. He's not forcing us to shift our emotions away from what they are in order to try and fabricate some kind of emotional version of love towards our enemies. In reality, what Jesus suggests to us here, and ultimately what he models for us on the cross, is a love that isn't about satisfying our own emotional state, but one that actually gives it up. One that actually lays down our feelings. One that actually values someone else above our own needs to be happy or fulfilled. This is the radical quest of the gospel. In our world, we are told that the pursuit of myself and my own happiness is the ultimate good, and Jesus says that we should lay that down for the sake of someone else. Look at verse 29. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is what love looks like. Put aside yourself and do good. And then, incredibly, give good gifts. What's really fascinating is that Jesus comes back to these things. In verse 35, and he says again, love your enemies, do good to them, and give them good gifts, right? Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid, 
And then your reward in heaven will be great, and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. You see, Jesus' love is grounded in the nature and the character of God himself. In fact, these, these three things, this idea of loving or blessing, and then doing good, and then giving good gifts, are found in the very nature of, of what we call the Trinity. Right? God the Father who loves and blesses us. But then moves from that to, to action, right? What does it look like to do good? Well, well, Jesus shows us ultimately in the cross what doing good looks like. Jesus' actions towards us are his demonstration of his love for us, which progresses to the idea of giving good gifts. Just as the Holy Spirit gives his good gifts to us, that our Trinitarian view of love is found in the very nature and fabric of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We love by blessing as the Father loves us. We love by doing good as the Son has done good to us. And we give good gifts reflective of the Spirit who gives good gifts. Our new way of loving is built around the model that is set before us in the very one who we love. So Jesus isn't advocating for relational love. And we know this because Jesus wasn't friends with all of his enemies, right? He said harsh things to the Pharisees and he criticized Rome. But he was friends with some. Judas was close. But it's not across the board, so it can't be relational love. And he isn't ad advocating for an internal feel-good love because Jesus shows this in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, I don't want to do this. Father, if it's possible, lay down or take this cup from me. But then he sets aside his own desires and says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The love that Jesus models sets aside oneself and chooses to, good, to do good, and even goes so far as to giving good gifts for the sake of our enemies. And that all brings us to the golden rule. Verse 31, right in the middle. Do to others, even your enemies, as you would like them to do to you. It falls right in the middle of this section, framed on either side by the, by the, the statement, love your enemies. And that's important because it gives us some context. Over the past few weeks, Pastor Kirk has talked to us about the need to go back and look not only at what comes immediately before a passage or after a passage, but also look at parallel passages. And when Matthew, in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, talks about this passage, this kind of love your enemies language, he starts with this, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemies. This vengeance idea is the framework. This relation to our enemies is the framework or the context that Jesus speaks these words. Luke doesn't include the eye for the eye piece, but I think we should still recognize that this is part of what's coming or what's shaping his language. Jesus is speaking into a particular culture, a particular culture that has two major ways of relating to each other. In, in, in the Jewish framework, we have the, 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 the framework of what's called reciprocity, 
the idea that I would do to someone else so that they owe me something and have to give it back to me. Have you ever done that? You do somebody a favor, but then they owe you a favor? And Jesus is rejecting that idea and saying, no, you don't do for your enemies so that, or do for others so that you get something back. And of course, if that's the Jewish framework, the Roman framework, or at least towards the, the Jewish people, was one of subjugation. In that model, you might say, do to others so they don't hurt you, or because they made you do it. Jesus rejects that too. He's not saying do to others because you have to. He's saying give freely good gifts. Jesus gives us a new way to love. Not a reciprocal love, not a subjugating love, but a Jesus way to love. He says, do to them as you would like them to do to you. Do to them what Jesus does for us and do it in a way that reflects who he is in us. It's, like I said, a, a radical and extreme call. Not hard to understand, really difficult in practice. And so it, that opens up the question, I think, of what do we do with this? In terms of application, I want to suggest there are a couple of things that the passage just spells out for us. Look what Jesus says. We've read this a few times already, and we'll read it again. To those who are willing to listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those that curse you. And pray for those who hurt you. Jumping down to verse 35. Love your enemies. Do good to them. This is crazy. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Bless them, do good for them, and give them good gifts. And listen, I recognize this might start off small. Maybe your idea of blessing or praying for your enemies has to start off with, God, help me not to seek vengeance on my enemies. Maybe your prayer has to start with, Help me not to seek revenge in my actions or my thoughts. But an interesting thing happens if we, if, we, if we think about God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this idea of blessing and doing and giving. We might think of it as a line, right? It's like, oh, if we could just start with trying to pray for them, then that would maybe move to us doing good things for them. Like our prayers would change us enough to do good things for them. And then eventually we would get to the point where we could think about lending to them or giving them good gifts. But I don't think it's just a simple linear piece where we move along from one to the other. I want to suggest to you that it's actually more circular. The, the God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are more intermixed than just a singular line, right? That as we pray for somebody, that leads us to doing good things for them. As we do good things for them, it leads us to the idea of giving them good gifts, which leads to a change of our hearts and causes us to pray for them, and our blessing becomes more genuine. And our more genuine blessing is more reflective of doing good things for them that are more reflective of Jesus. That in turn causes us to think, oh, I wonder if there's a way I could help them. And we start giving good gifts, which in turn causes us to be grateful for them and we pray for them and we give them good gifts and we do good things and we bless them 
And we start thinking, oh, actually in doing this, my heart has changed. And my love has moved from just the tiny little thing of maybe I could stop seeking vengeance in my mind to maybe I could actually love as Jesus loves. I want to suggest that we can start off small and move towards the love that Jesus calls us to. It's interesting when uh, this series was preached at Living Hope, and so uh, I've got a, had a chance to listen to a couple of the sermons from the series where they delivered it. Pastor Daniel at Living Hope said it this way. He said, keep loving your enemies until you begin to love your enemies. Well, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I talk about the last piece of, of application, something that I think we can do together uh, in just a few minutes. We're going to sing a song, and then we're actually going to celebrate communion together to close our service. The book of Matthew, in chapter 5, verse 24, tells us that if you're presenting a gift at the altar, and you remember that someone has something against you, first make it right. And while it's not talking specifically about the, the place of communion, I want to suggest there's a really great tie-in to communion. That as we think about celebrating communion together in just a few minutes, that we have to consider the way that that causes us to relate to one another, even our enemies. And so we're going to sing a song. Interestingly enough, it's a song called The Blessing. And if you're prepared today, I want to, I, I want to invite you to think about the ways that we might sing this song not only reflective of ourselves, but is there a way that we can shift to those people that we say, oh, would they fit in the category of blessing? And can we make this song a prayer for our enemies? You might not be there today, but can we make one or two lines? Can we use this song as a time to reflect, God, how can you change my heart before I come to the altar and we partake in communion together? And when we're done the song, Brad's going to come up and we're going to share together. And I want to think about pushing ourselves to the radical call of Christ before we partake in remembering the radical actions of Jesus.